The text for our scripture meditation this evening is Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. You can find that in the end of your program, on the inside of the rear cover. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Good Friday in 2018, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio, posted an ad on their Facebook page promoting their online courses in theology. We teach those who teach the faith, it said. And then at the bottom, a link with an invitation to learn more about a master's degree in Catholic catechetics. Within hours, the keeper, the administrator of the Facebook page, received a notice that their ad had been removed because it violated community standards. The ad featured uh, an image, a picture of a gilded crucifix in a high Roman style. Christ on the cross with arms outstretched, with red-painted blood accentuating nail-pierced Hands And according to the content monitors at Facebook, this image was, quote, shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. Well, the university posted a response agreeing with Facebook's assessment. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all those things, it wrote, it read. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking, yes, God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death upon a cross, and it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross and left to die, all the hate of all the sin in the world poured out upon his humanity. It's one of the moments, I think, that you realize the godly reserve of the gospel writers. They don't give us all of the lurid details they surely could have included. They do not focus like independent filmmakers selling uh, gore for cheap thrills. They do not focus on the tearing, the piercing, the inhumanity of it all. The details are there if you go looking for them. I'm poured out like water, prophesies the psalmist. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, melted within my breast. A company of evildoers surrounds me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them. Shocking, sensational, excessively violent. But when you turn to the Gospels, a quiet modesty. Luke says simply, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. No more details were necessary, actually. Everyone in this day and age had seen it at least a dozen times before. They all knew what a crucifixion looked like. They all knew the sort of suffering it involved. And every citizen, every subject within the reach of Rome 
knew what it signified. To the Gentiles, it meant conquest. The all-reaching arm of Caesar routing out every threat to imperial domination. And to the Jews, it also signified the curse of God upon iniquity. This is where Paul picks up the story. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's a term that's lost its force in our day. To our cultural mind, a curse conjures images of witchcraft and fantasy. It's, uh, it's Macbeth's weird sisters or pinpricked dolls in voodoo houses. For our enlightened minds, curses are hokey things, we imagine, that live somewhere on the border between laughable and superstitious, but in Scripture. In Scripture... The curse belongs in the category of God's all-powerful speech. It is a subset of the unbreakable, unrestrainable declaration of God's sovereign will. That's actually the first divine reality that we encounter in the Bible. God spoke, and existence existed. Light and energy and vast, swirling cosmos. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. God's word is incapable of returning to him empty. It always accomplishes that for which he sent it. So where the Lord declares salvation, there is none who can turn it back. But where the Lord decrees his judgment, there are none who can escape the sentence. And that's what a curse is. It's God's judgment in the form of declaration. It is damnation sealed with a divine oath. The image in Paul's mind, as you trace out his argument, the image comes from the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 27, Moses commands the tribes of Israel that when once they've entered the land of God's promise, they are to take their stand upon the twin mountains. Mount Ebal on the one side, Mount Gerizim on the other, and all the tribes are to be arrayed on the mountains around the Levites gathered in the valley in between and standing there under the witness of creation. They were to vow submission to God's law. The Levites should cry out with a loud voice. They should declare the sins that man thinks God does not see. Cursed be the man who makes a carved image and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Amen. 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 And on it goes to the rising crescendo. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. It was an opportunity to agree with the righteousness of God. To assent that his word is just and his ways are true, so that when humanity breaks faith and rebellion to God, the Lord shall be held blameless for the judgment that ensues. It was the same reason that capital punishment among the tribes took the form of a public warning. The basic shape of the command was that criminals should be cut off, removed, 
excised from the community of Israel like a cancer intent on spreading. So sometimes the offender was stoned and the heap of rubble was left on the body as a witness. In the worst cases, corpses were hung on pikes and displayed as an agreement with God's decree against lawlessness. It was all a reminder of the seriousness of sin that we're all so quick to forget. It was a reminder that iniquity is the great separator, that death is what sin deserves. It was a ministry of mercy to the sheep of God's pasture. The law was given to Israel not to serve for them as an excuse, but to offer an explanation. God's curse falls on all human sin. His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. Paul writes in Romans 2 that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, but all who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. And God's law was given to Israel to wake them up by signs, by degrees, by precept upon precept, to wake them up to the curse that stands immovable against all commandment breakers. Here's how our shared confession puts it. The Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession speak in unison on this point. Every sin, both original and actual, brings guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law. And so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. The wrath of God. The curse of the law. The death of the soul and the body. But if that wrath and curse appeared, if it showed up in time and history wrapped in human form, who do you suppose that it might look like? If the guilt of our sin with all its miseries could be poured into a single vessel, if God's eternal judgment could be squeezed into a span, would you recognize that moment in time? Could you bear to see the sight? Would you think it was too sensational, too shocking, too excessively overly violent? He appeared. He appeared in the form of a servant. He appeared as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He appeared as a man despised and rejected. He appeared in the place of a criminal, cut off, crucified outside the gates of the city. And his body was hoisted on a pike as a warning, in a scene of gruesome violence. His Appearance was marred beyond human semblance, writes Isaiah. His form beyond the children of man. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. God's judgment appeared. God's righteous wrath was poured out and it filled the only human vessel capable of containing God's eternal curse. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, the eternal Word of God incarnate. Now, Paul, when he writes, refuses to allow us to think that Christ suffered for any sin of his own, 
Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He was born under the watchful eye of God's law and his commandments. He came into the world in a body of flesh and blood. He lived 33 years among humanity that Job tells us, humanity which is abominable and corrupt, humanity which drinks iniquity like water, yet all his days he remained upright and sinless in thought, in word, and in deed. There was not a fleeting moment's grumbling, not a thankless thought toward his heavenly Father. There was never the smallest fib that crossed his lips, never the smallest lust that gripped his heart, never a split second of unmeasured, unrighteous anger. He remained, according to Hebrews 7.26, holy, innocent, and undefiled. So it's not much of a surprising scandal when three times we hear the witness of that spineless pilot. See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. No guilt. No shame. No hidden iniquity. So that when Christ hung on that cross outside Jerusalem, he was not there as a sinner, but rather as a substitute. He was a ransom paid to set us free, a sacrifice for sinners with nothing to offer. And on that cross, our guilt became the great separator and caused the Savior to cry out to his God. Our our sin produced the wages of the death of the Savior for accursed people. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, he writes, a curse in our place. A curse like the goat on the Day of Atonement, brought near to the altar, and all the sins, and all the iniquities, and all the transgressions, three times in Leviticus, uses all of those terms. All the sins, all the iniquities, all the transgressions laid and pronounced upon the head of the sacrifice, the head of the substitute. And then led away into the desert to bear the iniquity away into the wilderness, into the forgetting, and into the forgiveness. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he did it because that's what we needed. We needed a perfect priest who doesn't need to offer bulls and goats and sacrifices for himself before he can consider our cause. We needed a willing sacrifice with sinless blood and infinite worth. We needed the Lord himself to come in our stead and to cleanse us from all the impurities that all our works and all our rituals could never touch. We needed God Almighty in the flesh. And in our place and on that cross that we deserve. We needed it because apart from Christ's sacrifice in the place of sinners, God's word of condemnation stands fixed. And whom God curses shall surely be cursed, and whom he blesses shall surely be blessed. And we have no power, no authority to move ourselves from one category into the other. That's the argument Paul's been making as he writes his letter to the Galatian church. 
It's an issue that goes deeper. It goes beyond evangelicals making sense of their faith on a quiet Friday night. It's the ancient question. Reborn afresh in each new human generation, it is the philosophers erecting statues to unknown gods in Athens. It is the Maya sacrificing captives on ziggurats to appease gods of rain and harvest. It's every Hindu seeking Brahman. It's every Buddhist seeking Nirvana. It's every New Ager seeking to be free, to be liberated from all those discontentments and desires that they just can't shake, no matter how enlightened they become. It is every upward reach of every human tribe bearing witness, though they try to suppress it, that what can be known about God actually is plain to them. Because he's made it known to them and the things that have been created so that man is without excuse. It's even the question that plagues some skeptics and cynics in their hours of moral reflection. Marganita Lasky was an English novelist, an atheistic humanist, and before her death in 1988, she said, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. It was an admission, I think, that though she didn't believe that Good Friday is true, she knew in her heart that she needed it to be. And the question Paul is dealing with here is the question of how can I be made right? How can my sin be atoned for? How can I be received by the God I know is there even though I try to avoid him? That's the question Paul's been wrestling with, reminding the Galatians of in his letter. How can those under the judgment of God be declared righteous in his sight? How can our curse be exchanged for a blessing? And the answer, the only answer, is the sacrificial death of Jesus. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit by faith. The blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham by faith is God's word of unchangeable favor. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He received a righteousness, not a, not a righteousness earned, not cobbled together from broken pieces of his attempts at morality. He received a righteousness reckoned. He received a righteousness accounted. It was declared by God's unbreakable promise. And the blessing of Abraham is acceptance with God and life in his presence and joy in his kingdom forever. It is righteousness by divine fiat. That's the blessing of Abraham. It's uprightness established by the word of God's decree, offered on the basis of Christ's perfection, sustained by the Spirit who indwells redeemed believers. And when Jesus, the seed of Abraham, became the curse he didn't deserve, he opened to us the blessing of peace that we could never achieve. It was the happy exchange of the gospel that so captivated Martin Luther. This is what he wrote. So long as sin 
Death and the curse remain in us. Sin damns us. Death kills us. And the curse curses us. When these things are transferred to Christ, what is ours becomes his. What is his becomes ours. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the shocking, sensational violence of the cross is the only answer to humanity's question. He took our curse so that we could receive his blessing. He took our sin so that we could be set free. Not by works done by us, but by the word of his power. By the gift of his spirit. Christ became the curse we deserved. So that we could receive his blessing. Please join me in prayer. O sovereign, righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you. For this night in which we commemorate, remember, give thanks for the death of Christ, the curse he bore for us. Help us, O Lord, to have faith in him, and by faith in him give us the blessing of Abraham, your indwelling spirit, salvation by faith. Declare us, O God, righteous in your sight, for the perfection of Jesus imputed to us, we pray in his name. Amen.